I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is coming off! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Little reverse pass, Hello and welcome to a very special mailbag edition of the 42 Rugby Weekly. Everything has descended to chaos, so to soothe your ears, minds and souls, we finally gone and assembled the Dream Team. Murray Kinsella is here in studio. How are you, Murray? Yeah, I'm honoured to be part of such a star-studded podcast. Jackman is in the building. Bernard, you alright this week? Yeah, very good, thank you. And completing the set of Rugby Weekly panellists this week is the one and only Andy Dunn. Andy, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Super. So, as we've previously discovered during increasingly regular non-game weeks during the Six Nations, there's still always something to talk about. And given our listeners and the 42 members already shape so much of our coverage, we've decided to hand the reins over to you guys for the week. The famed members WhatsApp group have put together the questions for this week's pod as I edge ever closer to redundancy. And we'll put as many of them as possible to Andy, Bernard and Murray over the course of the show. Uh, you guys obviously know each other pretty well. You would have played together at club and provincial level fleetingly, maybe? How, how, for how long, Andy? Um, one one season with Leinster. Um, I'd come back from playing in Bath. And I think Birch, well, you'd, you had you been in Leinster before that for a year or two? Yeah, I think uh, I was, yeah, my second year in Leinster, maybe, second, uh, yeah. under Cheka. Yeah. yeah, we're both heavily involved. Heavily involved. Hold the bags. When Andy put his bag down, I picked it up. Unbelievable team culture. Yeah. I don't know, it's good. Hard yards. Yeah. Earned the right. Character building. Character building, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those guys are the most important. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we discovered in the members' pod a couple of weeks ago, not everybody is so willing to pick up a gear bag without making a fuss about it. Eddie O'Sullivan talking about um Alan Quinlan and oh, yeah, yeah. Frankie Sheen to a lesser extent being dropped uh, during the foot and mouth season for the was it the Scotland game? In yeah, Murrayfield? for the Scotland game. Yeah, I don't think Quinlan has forgotten that. Yeah, I think it still pains him. I remember just that week the Italy match was postponed. We had mentioned 2001. The first thing he said was, "I'll never forget getting dropped for that Scotland match because <laughs> obviously it was such a distance between the games. Things change." Um, was it Kieran Dawson who ended up starting in so. the back row instead of him? And he didn't feature again. So oh, was yeah. he actually picked for the original fixture? He was in the oh, first two oh, games. Yeah. And he was okay. tipping away nicely. But then when the when the reschedule game came around, things were very different. So it'll be interesting to see if anything like that happens this time around uh, come October. Yeah, provided we get to October anyway. Um, so I've divided up the questions to sort of like micro, macro and miscellaneous. I've filtered out the questions about your dietary habits, Murray, because I find them really creepy. And uh, <laughs> we're going to stick to rugby. It's an ongoing joke in the in the members' WhatsApp group where they they sort of uh, jokingly uh, ask extremely miscellaneous questions about your life. Oh. Um, I don't provide answers, <laughs> okay, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, they're they're very no. They, I mean, they're interested in your well being as we've established in the past, journalist welfare and things like that. That's lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but to start with, a sort of an overarching question about uh, the unions, I suppose, and the impact that all of these uh, suspended fixtures and postponements may have on each of them individually. We've obviously obviously touched upon. Uh, the financial impact uh, for the IRFU in even missing the Italy game at home. But uh, here's a question from Rory, and he actually asked it a few days ago, possibly before the last podcast, but he missed it. So he uh, sent me a, a kind, gentle reminder. 
And he asks, what is the financial impact of the unions because of the delay in the Six Nations? Uh, the IRFU get paid based on where they place and must budget based on a worst case. Worst case, sorry. Uh, but presumably the delay in the conclusion of the tournament will delay the payments. What happened in 2001? Did the IRFU need to make any cuts as a result of the delay? And could the coronavirus prevent or delay investment in sevens, under 20s and the women's game? It would also be good to know how this will affect Wales, Scotland and Italy, as they probably have fewer uh, fewer cash reserves than us, England and France. And he's pointing to Bernard here to provide the answer. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that, to start with, I suppose, just to focus on Ireland. And as I said, you would have alluded to it uh, in a previous podcast, Murray, but... Um, do we know actually what happened in 2001? Was there a delay or... So, honestly, I don't know. I'd have to go back and, and ask a few people what happened there. But this time around, it is very concerning for the RFU and already we're seeing small repercussions. So they lose 5 to 10 million between that for the Italy game, home game, and and likewise for all the other unions who are going to host. Obviously, the, the revenue on match day essentially drives rugby in Ireland. Um, so they were even something small like... The RFU were pretty interested in hosting a sevens tournament. It's a qualifying, the last qualifying comp for the Olympics in um, this summer. And they decided not to do that because of the cost, not a huge cost. And obviously now with the coronavirus, there's also that side of it where I think they're pretty pleased they didn't go ahead with that idea. There's also been plans to kind of get these um, hubs kind of going around the country where they're putting a bit more investment into young players and bringing them together in kind of more organized settings. But those plans have also been delayed because... They just don't know financially what, what the situation is going to be and how long this is going to rumble on for. So they're very small examples, but already are seeing a bit of it. And now if we end up with, which looks kind of likely almost, the provinces be playing behind closed doors as well, potentially, uh, that's going to have even further financial implications. You're even seeing in, in the top 14 there, they met and they haven't re reached a resolution, I don't think, yet about potentially postponing the whole league because they're so concerned about the financial implications to lose our estimating that they lose three to four million because they obviously have that home quarterfinal in the Champions Cup as well, which would have been a big payday. You think of Leinster like trying to pack out the Aviva Stadium for the Saracens fixture and not getting that payday. It is very concerning for for, for clubs, na uh, national unions and the provinces as well. So that's a big part of on the rugby side and obviously everyone's going to support what's best for public health, but there will be ramifications. People will have to maybe pull back on some plans they had for spending money because they won't be getting it in. Have you heard much concern coming from Wales, Bernard? Um, no, I think, obviously, there's always... The, the Welsh won't be affected as badly because they don't get huge crowds anyway, so a lot of that, their revenue is coming from TV and and funding from the from the WRU down from the Pro 14. Um, I think the unions aren't in too bad a situation in, in that they're all pretty acid-rich, you know, uh, particularly the RFU is in a pretty healthy state financially. So as long as it's only a, a short to medium term kind of turmoil, uh, they'll be OK. But you look at some of the clubs, you know, we know it's it's well spoken about only one club in England turns a profit, you know. Uh, um, so they're all pretty tight to, um, uh, I suppose, to run out of cash on a regular basis. They're lucky they're private investors. But don't be, you know, you have to take into account as well, some of those private investors' wealth will be hit by you know, a global recession as well. And, you know, I know in France from, from my time there, um, you know, if, if one 
sugar daddy, you know, uh, pulls out, it can actually destabilize the the whole the whole structure of the club. And there's probably not enough of a, of, of, I suppose, of a cash cow, in terms of you know the the, the F, French Federation or the league in, in France to bail out numerous clubs. You know, we've, we, there's a lot of talk at the moment. Biritz might go under um, pretty soon, and that was nothing to do with the coronavirus. That was just, you know, their their financial outlays far exceeded their and uh, their their income for a long period of time. And there's a historic club that you would five or six years ago you would have said there's absolutely no chance Biritz will ever be in danger financially because they had a, a rich benefactor. You know, they had a successful team, and within four or five years that that changed. So, um, you know, I would say that a lot of clubs and uh, in the Pro 14, you know, are, are pretty close to being uh, effectively going into administration, um, you know, except that they have the bailout of, of the governing body um, if they need it. So anything that affects their, their cash flows and, and creates doubt around where their income streams are going to come from will be very worrying. And I suppose if everyone calls, it's like, you know, if there's a run on the banks, if there's a run on the union from all the stakeholders at professional level, that could cause some some jeopardy. But at the moment, it's only postponed. Our, the RFU, for example, should get that Italian revenue in October, I don't think there's an issue there. But if this was to become something that games that can't be replayed, um, definitely someone's going to have to f- foot the bill. In relation then to what we have seen so far on the pitch, Andy, a question here from Dempsey about Johnny Sexton. And uh, given it's only a surname, I'm actually not sure if it's a man or a woman, but they are asking, was it a mistake to pick Johnny Sexton as captain? And if so, who should it have been? With question marks over his captaincy skills and massive question marks over his form, has the armband been detrimental to his own game too, do you think? Um, he, I, If you look at the last 18 months, um, I think the biggest Irish international games have been, if we say the New Zealand game at home that we won, where we were at the peak of our powers. Um, after that, then the England game at home the 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 key games the the Welsh game for the Grand Slam, the the Scottish game in the World Cup, and then maybe uh, the England game just gone. He's only really played well in in maybe one or two of those games, the New Zealand game and the Scottish World Cup game. So in terms of form, he had a stinker in in two or three of them. So if you're looking at at just form alone in recent history, um, I think there's a f- there's a reasonable argument to question his selection, actually. As a player rather yeah, than even as captain. If you're, if you're going to be strict on how he's played in the top five most important games in the last 18 months, and he doesn't play in every game, <clears throat> he's been well beyond poor in three of them. He's, he's had a stinker. like He's been really poor. And he'd say that himself. Um, and so does the media. And so, do, you know, no, no one's attacking him in that sense. He's just been well below par. So in that sense, given his age and his injury profile, I thought the captaincy was um, a risky choice as opposed to a safe choice because his he he's not guaranteed um, from a physical point of view, and that's just injury profile and age coming together in rugby as it does. So if it was a short-term selection for the next year or two to 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 allow a smoother transition for Farrell, I can understand where he's coming from. He wants to come in and and maybe not shake things up overtly. Um, but then it begs the question, he has to make a change then at some stage and you've lost a year or two of what you could have had with a younger captain. So all in all, I think it's it's um, 
it's a decision I, I probably I don't agree with. I think it matters hugely to Johnny Sexton that he's the Irish captain. I think he he's taken huge pride in it, um, and I think it looking at it uh, from afar, which is very easy in the England game. The the early mistakes seem to affect his his technical execution then. Um, and that can happen anyone at any level. So as a one-off, you, you, we don't need to keep going after that. But but the overarching thing, if I was to look at his form over the last year and a half, that that to me was the, the maybe the more of a a signal that he he might not have been made captain. But um, I did a I did a, I emceed an event with Paul O'Connell recently, and I and Paul had asked me some difficult questions because he was getting, you know bored with being uh, lauded too much so I said well <laughs> do you think Johnny Sexton should be the Irish captain um, and he, he kind of tiptoed around it for a minute or two so I said well you asked me to ask you a difficult one you haven't answered the question so what's your answer and there was a room full of two three hundred people and he kind of thought about it for a while he said I absolutely think it's the right idea because he's <clears throat> the most competitive guy the most experienced guy in the team I need a number of reasons like that so He's a Lions captain, an Irish captain. I'm just a little guy sitting in a studio. So everyone's yeah, got it. He's everyone's also, got views. He's also a man in a room with 300 people. True, you know, true. So. But um, yeah, my personal opinion, I think it's it's probably the wrong choice. On his foreman, you, would you play someone instead of him? Do you think there's a better person who could play better at out half? Uh, hmm. Well, I so think, I, yeah. I mean, the only one, if Carberry had been fit, but he's not. So that's mm. it. I think Carberry's the only one who, I mean, a very different style of player. When If he were to come in and get a, a good run, when he had that great run with Munster, there could have been an argument. But um, Ross Byrne is a very safe pair of hands, but he's not in, He's not as good a rugby player or he's not as effective as Johnny when Johnny's on form. But if you can handpick the most important Irish internationals that we've played in the last... 12 months I don't think you could argue that against me that Johnny's been very poor in three of the key games yeah if and not four yeah so that's just something to look at in isolation yeah but there's probably other players who've had been poor in all those yeah. games certainly yeah. there's a, quite a crop of them and yeah it's hard to just drop everyone based on that the concerning thing I think is and we've talked about it in a collective sense with Ireland is sometimes when Johnny Sexton has a bad start it just seems to unravel and those games are good examples and because he's in such a prominent important position yeah. it's magnified tenfold whereas another player can make mistakes we barely even notice that's the concerning thing I think he'll be the one most affected by what's happened with these postponements I mm. think he put up Instagram posts yesterday talking about how it's been such a tough two weeks from mm. based on what happened in his last game and it'll just eat him up until he gets a chance to kind of redeem himself he'll have this thing in his head that everyone's against him everyone wants him gone from the team um, and he's just such a self-pressuring character that it really will gnaw away at and that, I suppose that's one of the reasons where I, I look at is is that the nature he has and the personality he seems to have is that suited then to to lead in the group because he he will take huge responsibility he always has done on the field so to take the captaincy as well as all the responsibility the decision making that's that's another it's an additional <clears throat> weight on his shoulders Wilkinson would have been a similar player but he he didn't captain sides you know so mm. Could he do without it, Bernard? Do you think, from your point of view? No, so I, I'm biased here, and I, I put my cards to the table. I'm I'm close to Johnny, so I, I find it hard to give a non-biased opinion. Mm. I respect Andy's opinion, everyone else's opinion, but I genuinely do think he's the right man for the job, uh, based on having spoken to players who who are currently playing with him. How he captains Leinster, I think his form for Leinster has been 
pretty good. Um, he's still the best 10 in Ireland. I think he was decent against Scotland, uh, good against Wales, and he did have a massive blip. And I think the problem is, you know, and I agree his injury profile is poor and we're looking for the next captain. But I think for Andy Farrell right now, he is the best captain. Um, and it's unfortunate he had such a poor game. Um, and it's even more fortunate he hasn't a chance to to go and rectify it. And, and when you when you have that poor game and um, you haven't captained Ireland, you know, for a long period, you don't have that, I suppose, track record of success, people will question him. And, and, and that's, that's, that's the job. But uh, I do think at the moment, when I look at a squad and, and alternatives, I think he's by far the best man for the job. And now he's got to manage to, I suppose, um, deal with that pressure and burdency of, of, of being captain. And if things go wrong um, and being able to still not let it affect the game. But I think the games that the games that he's been poor, we've been poor in general as well. Uh, obviously the high profile one was England um, and it was early in the game. So it's easy to shift the blame onto him. But we've such an experienced team. Um, you know, we should be able to function pretty well, even if our place kicker is having an off day or or that. So it's just, I think if you look at Leinster, he looks very comfortable captaining the team. So I would say for Ireland, it's just a case of getting lieutenants around him uh, and not be become so focused on it being his role to be a, a 9 out of 10 every day, because that's not going to happen as a 10. Um, and that the Leinster thing has probably happened, you know, probably... Uh, more organically to a certain extent or he's more comfortable in that setup you know just just consistency and cohesion there the Irish setup is changing a little bit like some Mike Cat coming in Farrell coming over as head coach so you've a lot of different things probably people finding a way around and Johnny Johnny maybe he doesn't have the support network around him to be able to be really at ease I would I think, say I think that's the, the key point is others and probably need to step up like he's having a bad day uh, against England but like there's no well, one like, stepping up a, to, to feel that I, I think James Ryan's probably the only one really showing showing leadership on the pitch but you can see that he's still finding his way like he's trying to find his edge as well as learn the game when at the, the very top level when the fumble happened happened in the dead ball area in Twickenham and it was just and just a mistake I think there was no he was he was very intently concentrating and it was it was a technical error the ball got away from him yeah. I was nobody helped him out afterwards and I, I, like whether you're captain or you're not he was a bit on his own and surely you know the games he's played badly and he has played two or three as I said, really poor ones. Connor Murray's been very poor too. Like they're experienced fellas. Someone's got to go over whether you're captain or not. They dr- drag him into the group. Then suddenly they were all leaning on their knees and he was the one trying to talk. You know, at some stage, if you have a leadership group, someone else needs to take, look, I'll step in for two minutes here. You take a breather. You've made a mistake. You know, calm the jets or whatever. But that was something that actually frustrated me looking at the, the immediate psychological reaction to his mistake in the dead ball area. And I think I agree with you, Andy. I think that's probably one of the positives that potentially come out of that defeat against England is that that was an area we didn't handle well. And sometimes you have to go through that to actually identify there was an issue there. So the next time it happens, people understand. So, you know, for, if Johnny was to say, look, I, I didn't feel the team rallied after that mistake or when I missed a kick, I felt confidence levels dropped, you know, you need to be aware of that and you need to have I suppose protocols or, or people who are going to take on a little bit of ownership because as a goal kicker as a, a talisman as a captain and someone like we play a lot more off 10 than we probably did before so there's a lot of ball going through him um, there's a lot of pressure defensively uh, people want to get a shot on him you know you need to have other people who who are your eyes and ears and are taking different areas of responsibility and a lot of people James Ryan's a phenomenal player and you know a lot of people would say oh why isn't he captain you know I, you know, the information I have is that wouldn't suit him at the moment. You know that he might grow into that type of player, but just because he's tough, abrasive, 
you know, very consistent doesn't necessarily mean that it'd be good for him either. So, like, there's no one obvious. Like, Peter, you could say, but at the start of the Six Nations, he wasn't sure getting his game. Um, I think Johnny's the best candidate in what we have at the moment, for sure. Yeah, and one, one last very quick point is he gives the best quotes, so he has to be captain. <laughs> Murray's choice, fair enough. Uh, question here from Kevin McCarthy, along similar lines. Um, good question, and apparently he's asked it twice in the past and I've ignored it, so third time's a charm. Who do the guys think will be Ireland's 10 for the Six Nations next year? If not Sexton, then we need to start the transition in the summer. Uh, he's speaking, obviously, about sort of succession planning. Yeah. So uh, we'll need a brief enough answer on this because we've got so many questions to get through. Is it Sexton again next year, do you think, or is there scope for change basically I, provided there's a fit again Joey Carberry in the mix yes yeah, if I was to predict I'd say Johnny Sexton be 10 and Carberry at 15 and they'll move forward that like Johnny's not that much older next but come to come to the next six nations so that would be my prediction right now so Carberry is a sort of a second playmaker mm. yeah Bernard same Carberry 15 is that sort of a universal belief here uh, no I'd say Carberry could be bench yeah maybe and not not on the side that's him if you want a quick answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there is a question here from Ben Walsh as well about a second playmaker and he was saying that since since Ireland, apart from Will Addison, don't really have any other players of the quality to do that. Um, is it even an option for them? But clearly, you would see Carberry as an yeah. option in that role. Even if he's playing 10 for Munster, you could see him playing 15 for yeah, Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. The game has changed. The All Blacks are always slightly ahead of the curve. They've been doing that model for for a long time now England getting huge success out of it we were just talking before we came on air Bernard about like the game has changed massively and the defensive line speed aggression suffocating uh, qualities just mean that you have to have something a little bit extra maybe and the two of them could work really well like it it was late in the game but when Ross Byrne came on and Johnny Sexton was at 12 in England it was Ireland's best patch I know England were mentally probably switching off and that was there to their detriment they should have got a bonus point but having that decision maker that vision a little bit wider on the pitch even oh, that was at 12 um, it just added a, another element to the attack and other centres can't really do that Other a lot of fullbacks can't really do that they're being pushed to do it but it's not something that comes as intuitively to them as Johnny Sexton or Joey Carberry so I think it would be great to see that but like, you watch England and, and some of their best passages against the Welsh last day it's actually Farrell stepping into first receiver and forward goes a bit wider the two tries are where he makes brilliant passes are, are decent examples of that. I know that the first one, the second one rather was a, a pass straight to him, but the first one where Farrell steps into first receiver and Ford's able to use his brilliant ability to read what's happening in defence. Farrell pushes him on that pass. He's able to draw in the, the final edge defender, Halfpenny, and put away um, Daly. So I think having that capability, it, it really adds so much to your attack. And I think it's important for Ireland definitely to really have a good extended look at it they flirted with it in the past I remember Jared Payne went to like relatively soon before he retired went to fullback against the English and it looked it looked really good and it was an organisational thing as well because you know they were trying to play with a bit more width and he was able to pull people into the right positions so I, for me that makes sense to, to pursue that model How feasible would it be Bernard just in light of the fact that Carberry will be playing week in week out presumably at 10 and then you're stepping up a level to test level and playing in a position where you can probably fill in Fairly naturally, but just that you won't have the sort of minutes in that position necessarily at, at sort of competitive level rather than during training. Yeah, I think he'd be okay because he has that in his in his background already. I know Leinster felt his, his future was more suited to fifteen than ten. Um, so, but I do think it'd be you know it'd be good for him to be playing for Munster at, at ten, being a, a 
a clear playmaker for them, goal kicking, um, and obviously being back up 10 to, to Sexton or, or eventually taking over from him as a 10. But at the moment, like Jordan is trying to develop that part of his game, Larmer, um, but it's not natural to him and has to be so natural. Like It's such a hard um, position to, to play and, and role to play, particularly as defence has become more aggressive. And um, I do think fellas who have experience at 10 you know, are naturally more comfortable with it mm -hmm. um, because they're used to making decisions um, and have got really good, I suppose, uh, playmaking ability and understanding of how to manipulate defences. And if you've been in the backfield all your life, um, it's it's not as easy. Very, I know Daly can step up there a little bit for 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 England, but realistically, it's Farrell and, and Ford who pull the strings. So um, I think Carberry can do it, yeah, for sure. And at, at the moment, the way Cat wants us to play, it's probably less relevant under Joe. But if we do want to play, you know, in those wide channels more regularly. Um, I thought like Robbie and, and Bundy as powerful as they are if they come up against people who are as powerful um, we get stuck in that middle block between right. the 15s and that's not good for us uh, so I think we're lacking that at the moment Imagine the kicking cap capability as well Yeah, to have like, someone who's that good at attacking kicking as well as Johnny Sexton it would be, be beautiful to watch I think Moving back to some of the more macro questions then Amy with all of the talent on the island growing each year and competition for places will there ever be an additional pro team formed here to give players more opportunities at the top level or will the IRFU change the overseas rule to allow players to play for Ireland while playing abroad? Are we losing out on developing the highest quality players because we're limited by only four provincial teams and this overseas rule? To which Richard Bonham added, should the IRFU either purchase a share in London Irish or begin to build a relationship so that young players can get some game time or older players get a payout without necessarily having to leave the system. London Irish are trying to bring back the Irish element of this and with good performances this year and a good coaching kidney, maybe now is the time. What are your thoughts there, Murray? I actually think by not doing that, by keeping to four teams, you're improving the quality because there's such a fight for places that only the very best are going to get through. Um, I think, it, yeah, it would make sense to have relationships with, say, someone like London Irish and maybe formalise that link and even add a bit more resource into the kind of exiles system which they're trying to do to be fair but like it's it's ferociously competitive to get a place say in Leinster and I think that's a good thing because the very cream of the crop come through I think I don't know I look at Wales and I wonder like would they actually be better off by reducing it and and funneling the quality really into one less team I think what Ireland have is is pretty good and I think if you went to five provincial sides say for example that's obviously the wrong term if there's five of them but then you're diluting the quality everywhere. I think what we have is is pretty good and there's a reason that it seems like there's so many good players coming through because they have to fight so hard for that spot. Yeah, I agree. I think the, it is great there's loads of young talent but what you want it to just be is unbelievably competitive and no free rides. And I think four teams means we can still, I suppose, equip the national team with enough quality. So to take a special position like Hooker or Nine, you know, you've at least three really good ones in each province, so that's 12 uh, to pick from for the national coach. So even with an injury crisis, there's still plenty of depth there. But young players have to work so hard to break into that top three. So uh, I don't I don't think it's bad, fellas, go abroad um, and get, get game time, etc. But um, I do think it's nice for them to go and prove themselves abroad. And then if they want to play for Ireland, they come back. So look, take someone like Ty Byrne, you know, he got let go by by Leinster um, you know he went to Scarlets he, he proved himself and he, and he came back so I, I have no issue fellas who really want to be professional players and get an opportunity to go abroad either from a financial or just a, a life point of view is great but I don't think there's anything wrong with 
with us actually saying we're going to have four really strong provinces. And even look at, like at the moment, Connacht probably need a little bit of help in terms of reinforcement. You know, the, they've just dropped back a little bit. Um, when, they, when they've had injuries at the start of the season, they really got exposed. So it's not like we have four provinces who are absolutely, absolutely tooled up, ready to conquer Europe. You know, we have Leinster who are dominant. Munster haven't qualified. Ulster have done well, in fairness. But like we're, so, we're not overloaded with proven talent that, Heineken Cup or Champions Cup level we have a lot of really good young players which is great um, but they need to they need to oust some of the older more established guys if, if they're good enough they're not they're not going to help you know us win win uh, titles at provincial level or us win trophies at international level I think um, the, I saw uh, Bowden Barrett is um, just returned he, he was given a long holiday and he's joined the, the Auckland Blues but he's going to go play with his local club team and um, they, I just like the way they've always done that in New Zealand. They don't do a half hour A tournament and the, you know drop down at professional tier. You, you're a professional, or you go, you go back and play MPC or club. And he's actually playing in in that in a local club side to get game time. And I think we have a ready made option in the AIL that is really underutilized uh, and undervalued. And um, this kind of half this middle ground where clubs developed or schools or clubs developed young talented players who are on the fringes of the provincial sides and the club got no access to them because they're playing in the Celtic uh, whatever yeah, it was BNI called Cup the BNI and Cup, Cup and they're like well for my mind they're, they're pretty they're not really that beneficial for anyone those tournaments I'd, I personally would rather see the second choice top level Leinster Munster Ulster guy playing in a bit more of a galvanised club tournament a bit of localised parochial interest uh, drive a drive a community culture through the clubs that feeds in and that the 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 best of the rest the second choicers are involved in community club rugby at a high level I think that could do a lot more than setting up a fifth province and, and that might be a bit of a lame option but 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 we could have a brilliant domestic club tournament I think that we don't certainly don't have right now an age grade below age grade rather below that then a question here from Robin C uh, given that Leinster are pulling ahead of the other other provinces and that seems to be driven by the talent coming up from the school system how can the IRFU build underage systems in the other provinces to bring up their collective level I know there were some similar questions back around Christmas, but I seem to recall the lads had different ideas about it. Maybe start with yourself there, Bernard, as somebody who has uh, been involved in coaching at Leinster Schools level. Is there anything that can be done in the other provinces to bring those competitions up to the same level? I know there'll be people listening from Garbally College and Christians and they'll yeah, be uh, I, growling at me here but <laughs> yeah I, I don't know so I, I have two experiences working with school so uh, I did Michael's in 2011-12 uh, which was Luke McGrath and Dan Levy's generation and uh, we had very tough games and we won we ended up winning sec- the second year we, uh, the cup but we had very tough games with Munster teams uh, Ulster teams we were no by no means like much better than them uh, so at that stage I would have said like the level of competition in other provinces is, is on a par to a certain extent or um, maybe just a little bit below but obviously the hype is about the Leinster schools it's um, it's obviously a, a huge hype machine and uh, very well supported and, and, and there's a lot of fanatical fans around it so that that can sometimes build it up and, now, and, and there's a lot of fellas who are coming through that system into into Leinster and then the ones who don't become rock uh, rock solid selections for Leinster seem to end up 
you know, drift them to, to other provinces. Um, so I don't think, and then this year I'm, I'm doing a little bit with Newbridge, um, and, you know, I think the school's competition in Leinster, I haven't seen much of the other provinces, but it's still a very good competition, a very good level. Um, the problem is, I think, what the other provinces are doing with those kids when they leave school, um, they don't seem to come true to the same, the same level. So I would say, I think, the actual production line is fine. I don't think you need to be too intense at school's level. I think kids already want to play for the school. They're very motivated. Um, and let them just enjoy it to a certain extent and they'll enjoy the competition. But it's when they come out of that school system, it's basically how you manage them and whether, where the balance is as well. So whether it's um, you know getting some access to club rugby, whether it's playing A rugby, um, how good the skills training is, how good the S&C is. They don't seem to be making the same. Or they come through a little bit later. So... Um, Take uh, take Tom O'Hearn, for example, uh, who's Irish in the 22nd row. Like, would he have already played five or six games for Leinster? I would say yes. So we'd know a lot more about him, you know, um, and potentially for him, that experience of playing in Pro 14 and playing under 20s would would better equip him to to, to being a, a long-standing member of Munster Rugby. Um, that's just the, the worry. Leinster seem to have a really good balance of being able to win games week to week, but also... Uh, blood players and they're coming into teams who all understand their jobs and they all look good like you know there's, I can guarantee you some of those kids who play for Leinster if they play for some of the other provinces maybe wouldn't have had as as comfortable debuts or second third fourth games so the 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 organisation of Leinster and the, the way they set them up to play and uh, the role Leo and Stuart etc do uh, with them just seems to make them look better than they maybe are or maybe they, they do in other provinces and that's that's something that we just need to replicate. You know, we want fellas. It's so hard to come out of out of underage rugby and 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 make that step up to being a pro fourteen player. Um, you know, I, I think they need to look at what Leinster are doing and replicate that in in the other provinces. And that's not Leinster don't need to give away any secrets there. But there's people there a few who who are in, in charge of player development pathways. And um, if if the, if other provinces don't have best practice, um, well then need to look at it because you know we can't just be relying on Leinster's. Uh, how would you say it? Uh, handoffs to go and pop, prop up the rest. You know, you still want to have that. You know, I, I'd love to see in ten years' time that Munster was a predominantly Munster team based on fellas who've come through that system. Connacht the same, Ulster the same. And at the moment, I can understand why they're all looking to to strip Leinster. But you know, the reality is, you've had whatever twenty years of professional rugby. You know, what have you really done? There's been money pumped into in, at all levels. What have you really done to 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 make sure that your player development pathway is as fine tuned as it needs to be? And if you don't have a Leinster schools, find another way of doing it. You know, you can't replicate that either because that's that's got a history all of itself. And and uh, obviously the population up here is, is bigger. But you know, be creative. Daisy Brumbies came out of you know uh, the success they had in the early start of professionalism wasn't based on having you know, a really strong feeder system in the Brumbies. They just taught a little bit differently about it. Mm. One of the other things, like just add briefly, is, is coaching the coaches. And, and the RFU have put a big focus on this. Your man, Matt Wilkie, is kind of in charge of this area. And like, I'm not having to go at any coach. I've so much respect people who give up their time to coach young players. It's unbelievably kind of selfless thing to do. But all those people who do it are really hungry to get better at actually coaching young players. And, and that's a massive thing all around the country, including in Leinster, but like lads who come from club backgrounds maybe haven't had exposure to um, coaches who've been given that kind of resource and, and that kind of education as well. So that's a massive part of it because like arguably the, the coaches you have when you're starting off for the first 10 years are more important than the guys you end up working for a professional level if you if you manage to make that. Just on that, uh, Mike Prendergast, uh, who's obviously coaching Racing now, so um, 
he was with me in Grenoble and he'd been struggling to get that step that first job in, in professional rugby uh, so he was coaching in Munster and he was involved in one of the schools I'm not sure which school in in, in, in Limerick or maybe it was Garbally or, um, or it was one of the schools anyway it wasn't Garbally but he thought at the time I remember chatting over a coffee that you know the RFU if they could say for example there's 8 teams in, in 1A or 10 teams in Division 1A that effectively there'd be a they become full-time coaches, okay? Um, uh, and obviously the club might contribute some, the IRFU might contribute some, and maybe then a school would contribute some. So effectively, and it wouldn't be massive, it might be, uh, I don't, say, say a salary of 40,000, right? Um, and say, you know, and these these guys then, they have, they're coaching in a full-time environment. Um, they'll be under supervision or, or, or aid from someone in the province. So maybe they get access to, Leo Cullen or Stuart Lancaster or or Van Gran, you know, on a quarterly basis, um, you know, they're taught how to how to analyze games properly. They're taught how to give feedback properly. They're taught how to coach skills properly. They're taught how to create a game plan properly. Um, you know, I think you would get much more bang for your buck with that four hundred thousand, say, um, a year, um, in terms of being able to, and also maybe then the the provincial coaches might have more trust in actually sending players back to play if they know they're going into an environment. I'm not saying the environment isn't good at the moment, but if there's that lack of clarity and communication, and again, it could be brilliant. I'm not saying it isn't, but I just think there's more chance of of a real alignment um, and bringing more Irish coaches through if they can actually, say, for two or three years, they say, okay, that's going to be my profession um, and I'm going to give it a proper crack because at the moment you have fellas who who have day jobs, who coach at night with the club. Um, and it's a lot of them just give up because, you know, it, it, it's too it's too, uh, it's too too hard or it's too stressful or, you know, it doesn't make the right sense financially for their family. But um, I think that could be a way. And I wouldn't, I don't think the, the onus would come on the RFU to fund it all, but I just think it'd be a really positive step because at the moment, the, a lot of the, the coaching development uh, funding seems to go into guys who are coaching in the provinces at a professional level already. Um, whereas you know, they don't, I think they already they are probably get a lot of support because they already work for the province, so they have access to the the elite coaches. Whereas the fellas in clubs, maybe you know, get get further get pulled further away from that. And as Robin Dempsey points out, actually, it's something they've done in Bandon already. I think where they the club and Bandon Grammar have pulled the resources to bring in a French coach, and you see, yeah, well, I was involved in that. Uh, I got a cut phone call back four years ago um, from some mad Bandon uh, fella saying, "Look, I want a French coach. We want a French coach for Bandon." And I was like, "What?" And he said, uh, "Yeah, we we just think it'd be brilliant. Um, can you get us? Uh, can you get us a, a good coach?" And like I was like, "Well, what level do you want?" And they were well, you know, someone in the top fourteen. And I was like, "Well, um, how much have you got?" And in fairness, it wasn't. It was just pure luck. The following weekend, we, we played Bordeaux, and um, I was having a having a post match meal with. Uh, Reggie's son and uh, he's a real maverick and a, a kind of bohemian attitude to life so he'd already taken a gap year to go to Spain to coach Spain and I said actually I have a club in Ireland who are looking for a coach now this he was coaching Bordeaux in the top 14 Bandon at the time were I don't know how many divisions below that uh, but he wanted his kids to have an opportunity to, to live in, in an English speaking country uh, I put the two of them together and it ended up he went in there to coach Bandon and coach the school and I think now you're starting to see, mm. you know, some really good players come come through that. Now, when he left, they rang me to say, "Get him another one." No chance. You know what I mean? It was just, it was just <laughs> pure. The, you know, the stars aligned. But um, yeah, there's definitely ways of, I suppose, being creative in terms of how you package something together. And uh, I think that 
was it Prandy's idea? Yeah. It's an absolutely brilliant yeah. idea. It's well, he, such he, a clever he, idea. He, he told me he spoke to the RFU <clears throat> about it and no one um, no one really How jumped at you, it. There's not a single drawback to the yeah. idea. Every Most of the stakeholders pay less. They yeah. get more access. Yeah. They get experience, you know, access to the top level coaches. If you went around and looked at most senior cup schools coaches or club coaches in the area, they'd bite your hand off to get a, maybe a bit more money and a bit more access and, and a bit more clarity to what is required at the top level. Because most of the top level coaches at one stage were amateur coaches or teachers. Like, you know, and there's a hell of a lot of replication across the board. Most most top level senior cup coaches are teachers yeah. and most club uh, coaches are, are working elsewhere and just just it's it makes entire sense at every level that suggestion to yeah, me. Yeah, I think you it's could absolutely do it, brilliant. Like you could do it for a three year block and see see how it works. Because I think you or maybe a two year block, I think fellas would probably want a little bit of security. But I think if you actually it's it's not putting all the onus on the RFU, it's a it's a partnership between mm. the RFU at the club and maybe a school or yeah. whatever um, but everyone would uh, the stakeholders would pay slightly less exactly. each 100%. you know and they'd get a better coach yeah. at the end in theory you get a better yeah, coach yeah in theory exactly. yeah I, I think it's a fantastic idea it certainly sounds that way uh, there's a question here from Amy Murray in relation to World Cups uh, what do the IRFU slash Ireland have to do to get to host a Rugby World Cup in future will it ever happen realistically she wonders uh, they probably have to Grease the right palms. <laughs> <laughs> Realistically, let's be honest. France did a good job of that last time around, um, allegedly. Um, but yeah, no, that's an did, important yeah. part of it is campaigning and getting support behind you. And sometimes you think you have support and it's, and it's not actually genuine support. It can change at the last minute. That was a frustration for the RFU, I think. They felt a little bit betrayed by a couple of the other unions. Um, I think probably improving infrastructure, making it a, a bid that's even more difficult to to turn down or to look elsewhere is really important. Obviously, France has incredible stadiums, plus a massive population that will go and support rugby matches. Not that that wouldn't happen here, but like you look at it without being biased towards Ireland, and their bid was strong as well, with, with brilliant um, stadiums to go and play the matches. Um, so, yeah, I think probably it was such a setback, it'll be hard to go back at it again and, and you have to get support from a lot of other sports obviously as well in Ireland but um, probably being active and in campaigning early as well is, is a massive, massive part of it Do you ever see it happening Bernie? Yeah no for sure it will happen um, but yeah it's just learning from the last campaign I think they did a lot of stuff right but um, you know at the end of the day it was a, it was a political campaign and, and it came down to money so you know they'll definitely learn. there's some really smart people involved in it and uh, you know as the country continues to to grow and and the stadium etc improve, yeah we will we will get it at some stage for sure. I genuinely think, like this is a biased opinion, but it would be just so cool over here. Anyone who comes to Ireland on a holiday on a trip is blown away by the hospitality and the fun, the sense of getting into a big occasion. We'd absolutely love it. Like even when the Irish national teams in any sport are playing abroad in big games, the country goes into carnival mode. So I can only imagine if it was on home soil for that extended period of time, even getting behind other nations and stuff, we're brilliant at doing that. So yeah, it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, Jangles asks, given some of the articles and comments that have been published about CJ Stander, Bundy Aki and Jean Klein, to name but a few, declaring for Ireland, can we expect to see the same level of vitriol if or when James Lowe 
the players for Ireland, or will it be different? If so, why? Might start with yourself there, Murray, as a medium man. I mean, I, I'm finding hard to answer that because I've. I don't think I've had any vitriol towards any of those. Oh no, sorry, I didn't mean that. Like that is mentioned, yeah. I, I can't answer for other people. I listen. I don't hate the player. I don't. I don't think the rule was good. I'm glad they changed it to five years. Low is going to be the last one through. I don't think I've ever really focused on that when when new players have been capped. Um, it is. An, it's an interesting dynamic. I'm sorry, I'm changing the subject here, but it's interesting to see now the likes of Keenan Knox and Munster. He actually got in in the three-year rule, but Edinburgh just signed a 17-year-old straight out of school from South Africa. He's going to come over, and if everything goes well and he stays and he enjoys it, he could play in five years potentially. There's quite a few in academies in France who have let come straight out of school. I think last year, maybe 18 players left South Africa straight out of school. Some of the most talented guys in the country and went into academies elsewhere. Um, so that'll be an interesting development potentially in the game. And I think that was always going to be happen. If there's a three-year rule residency-wise, you're going to exploit that to the maximum capability you can. And arguably, <laughs> like you could say, maybe nations should have taken more advantage of that while they had the chance. You look at maybe, I don't know, somewhere in the back row, Ireland could have maybe use that in this six nations, another player competing for it. That's me being cynical and thinking from that business point of view. But... I think you'll see people going for the five-year option, but just signing players a lot younger. Um, in terms of James Lowe, like I can only imagine people being excited, to be honest, about him playing Ireland. He's been very honest. Like we did that live event with him, and he he thinks the issue, he thinks the the rule, three-year rule, was crazy. Really, didn't he say that? I think he called uh, it stupid. Stupid. Uh, he wanted to play for the All Blacks, but he realised he wouldn't get that opportunity after he barely missed out. So yeah. again, he's just <laughs> he's playing by what was the rule, and it's thankfully now changed. Yeah, possibly his uh, his own sort of, um, I don't know, his own interpretation of the rule might actually work in his favour where he's holding his hands up and has done even in advance of potentially playing for Ireland and saying he doesn't even necessarily agree with it, but he's going to play the game. Uh, it could work in his favour. I don't know. Uh, like, it's, there are always going to be uh, question marks around it, like, and there are always going to be column inches dedicated towards yeah. how this guy is an Irish and whatnot, but at a certain point, like, you have to pretty much accept the the framework that's in place yeah this and, is what's happening yeah and it's probably regardless of players he's mentioned it's probably like Bundyaki is one of the most popular players in the Ireland rugby team I, from my experience of being around fans like he's absolutely loved in Connacht he's the most probably loved player in the squad um, and there's always one or two columns but like let's like we've had this discussion let's not let our perception of everyone be based on one or two articles bemoaning that individual or having a go with that person yeah it's absolutely it's absolutely valid to criticise the, the three-year residency rule as it was uh, or the five-year as it is even now, but I don't think I don't think those players are particularly unpopular in the general rugby public. No, of course not. I, I think even the articles to which Jangles alludes as well will usually make the point that it's not necessarily personal criticism. It's a criticism of the system for the most part. A couple of uh, fun questions before we let you go, so gents. Mwerin asks, what's the best game you've ever watched live and your favorite stadium or venue to work in, in terms of how they treat the media. So, Andy, as a media man yourself, who uh, <laughs> the Stadio Olimpico in Rome has big leather seats and a flat screen right in front of you. <laughs> and when you go down underneath into the bowels of the stadium, you get really nice quality food, glass of wine, um, 
I've only had one game there about two, I can't remember, two, three seasons ago and we hockeyed them. Craig Gilroy got a hat trick yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of come in at it. Got a hat trick and got a bollocking got afterwards. A, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, and that was a lovely sunny day in Rome. Uh, so I would say, hands down, that was my favourite media experience. Yeah. Is there a game that stands out to you as your, your favourite game to have been at live? As a, as in uh, as, a, the media. as a spectator or uh, even as a there's player, a game, there's a game that stands out. That's probably um, was when Gordon Hamilton intercepted um, the well, ninety one World Cup. We were playing Australia, and we should have beaten them. Gordon Hamilton kind of it wasn't an intercept. It was kind of a we we pilfered possession of him, and he got received a pass. He ran fifty meters, scored. Rav Keys got the touchline conversion, and I think we were. 17-15 up against or something like that uh, against Australia and uh, it was mayhem and then the Aussies came down famously kicked off a restart Neil, Neil or Rob Saunders botched the clearance but they ended up pulling this crazy backline play and scored in the corner but I've never been in a ground where it's just it burned into my brain it went from complete elation and mayhem to utter silence you could hear a pin drop and it was the old Lansdowne Road that was really wild. It was a wild stadium to be a part of when it was in its glory mm. days. And uh, that game stands out was one of my memory. Not not maybe my favourite, but certainly yeah. the one that imprinted itself heavily on me. Favourite venue for you, Murray, as a man who has toured them all? <sighs> yeah, there's some bad ones. <laughs> I'm trying to think. It's usually around the, the food before the match. Yeah. <laughs> and if there's yeah. wine available. Yeah. Stad, uh, Veladro, the one in Marseille is particularly yeah. good. They have some serious grub in there. The French food, like all the charcuterie, cheeses, nice. a lot of free booze and wine. So that's probably one of the best. But there's some really good ones. The Viva, to be fair to them, they draw on a decent spread. Uh, and now they serve Guinness before the matches, actually, which is a new thing this year. Unfortunately, it's before the match, so obviously not, not many people. I won't name names of who are actually taking a veil of it, but uh, that's a, an interesting new feature. Um, in terms of most enjoyable game, like actually Munster lost but in Lansdowne Road in 2004 the Wasps, Wasps yeah. game was just incredible like it was non-stop exhilarating drama twists turns Trevor Liotta I saw he did a, an interview with the Pacific uh, rugby players uh, recently um, and it was great kind of seeing his face because he was the one who scored that try it was obviously a heartbreaking day for Munster but it was all in the end part of that incredible uh, narrative building towards winning it so that was a remarkable day to be there and that old stadium was just cool wasn't it mm. two defeats for Irish teams are your standout <laughs> fixtures it <laughs> reminds me of that episode of Scrubs two old grumps <laughs> it reminds me of that episode of Scrubs where JD is daydreaming and uh, he's Robin and Turk is Batman in his own fantasy <laughs> yeah. he's the sidekick uh, Bernard do you have a favourite game that you attended yeah I, I, and actually another defeat for Ireland uh, <laughs> no but it was Ireland-Japan in the World Cup oh yeah, uh, yeah just yeah. just seeing the sh- the delight and the shock on the, on the Japanese uh, people's face and, and you know when they realised they'd won it I mean they've had so many really tough days and obviously a home World Cup and it was just there was an atmosphere that night which was I hadn't it diff- totally different than anything you'd get in, an, in the Northern Hemisphere or even a, a classical Southern Hemisphere venue you know um, uh, whereas this was this was Asia and it was just it was just absolutely mental and, and you know it was touching to be there even though it was a really bad day for us um, you couldn't begrudge them the, the win and because um, and they're actually almost apologetic the, the Japanese people are almost apologetic for winning you know because um, they're such humble people so for me that's just a, it was a va- very different experience than anything else I was actually on the schoolboy towers for that game um, uh, that 
the Dunners talking about as well and yeah we, like we were massive underdogs they were a stacked team and suddenly with five minutes to go it looked like we we're going to win and the place was I don't even, I think we're still celebrating when they scored mm. um, but just for me it was my first kind of sign of of what a big match could be like and you know and you're packed in that school by Terrace um, coming it up on the bus from two, boarding school it was 250 for a ticket yeah 250 for a ticket yeah. Um, £2.50 yeah and uh it was just a phenomenal, you know, the change in emotion was just, you know, definitely something I haven't forgotten. Two of the, two of the other performances I, I saw it as probably the best I've seen. Ireland against England when they won the Grand Slam, I thought for 60 minutes was, I thought yeah. it was the best of the Joe Schmier. I thought it was unbelievably good. It, definitely. And the other one was England against New Zealand in the World Cup. It was incredible watching that live because it, it obviously didn't expect just, to go that just way. Just gone, the semis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously there's a bit of recency bias there, but I thought that was an unbelievable performance. Obviously for England, the shame was they didn't do it in the final, but... I kind of almost thought they showed their best team in the world. I know South Africa won the final, but that was a remarkable performance to watch live. I was there in 2007 for France and New Zealand in the World Cup, the quarterfinal. <sighs> yeah. And now bear in mind, I was there with the hope that Ireland would have been there as well. But I remember, like, obviously it was an unbelievable game, but I, it was the first time it hit home to me what it meant to New Zealand, not just the World yeah. Cup, but rugby, generally speaking, because you saw people who had really only landed up from New Zealand for, like, the quarterfinal, semi-final, final, calling home in tears, like going like, I don't know what I'm going to do for the next few weeks. You know, yeah. like it was just the the sense of uh, desolation afterwards in in the stadium, and obviously jubilation on behalf of the French who were going around singing and like I know people, and it's something that people will give out about now a little bit, like Irish people trying to uh, infiltrate the party when they're not involved. But like <laughs> the choruses of the Fields of Athenry during that game. I was like, I don't know what age I was, you know, 14, 15. I was like, oh, this is actually class, you know. Mm. Um, one last one, because we need to leave you go, but a, a fun question here from Ben. Add one law and remove one law from rugby. Is there one law that stands out to you, Andy? I just you'd immediately like to want, I would like to police the feed into the scrum. It's a, not pre, it's a law that exists and it's just completely been diluted to the point the ball has gone in beyond the second row's feet at this stage. I think it would fundamentally change a lot that happens in modern rugby if you've got a hooker that needs to hook the ball correctly. And Birch is far more qualified to talk about this than me. But I can't fathom why, if you're a millimetre off line on a line-out throw, there's zero tolerance. But you're allowed to put the ball into the scrum, feeding it into the number eight's feet practically. And I think that's a, a brilliant law for a brilliant reason just gets ignored. I think it could fundamentally change rugby from what it requires in terms of your, the physique of the people who need to do that needs to change. That changes how your props are. It changes what the requirements your second row. It changes their fitness level requirements. Lots of things. So I think it would ultimately make more space on the field is also something I think it would do. Yeah. I think the fifty twenty two thing is a really good development. That's happening. They did the NRC trial last year. They actually spoke about it at the World Rugby kind of law symposium last week. Did, as we mentioned before, like the NRC is probably the worst place to try it because it was so much running rugby anyway in, in Australia's kind of second tier. But we're going to see that definitely trialed in, in bigger competitions in, in the next year or so. I think that'll make a big difference in terms of... What's the actual rule with it? You, you so if you kick inside your own half, essentially, and it, the ball bounces and rolls into touch inside the opposition 22, 22. you get to throw in. Okay. So the best example is Anthony Boutier. I've said it before. Yeah, yeah. That would have been a France throw so five imagine out. Raj playing with that real. He would have just dominated. <laughs> we would have been yeah. world number one. I think it's yeah. just, it, it, it's, it'll be a big change. I think it'll just open up space, definitely. I'd, I'd also go back to, I'd reduce the number of replacements allowed. 
Uh, obviously, there's player welfare implications in that, um, and I wouldn't take that lightly, but I think there's value in having fatigued players. Obviously, you don't want them getting injured when they're fatigued, but having fatigued players on a pitch uh, will open up space, I think, again, in, in later on the, in the contest as well. Yeah, it's a lot. I'd get rid of, like, be very hard on sledging. Okay, and back chat the referees. I think it's getting a little bit out of control. Um, just nail it now before it becomes like football. Um, every week people are pushing and pushing it, and uh, just it's a bad example. So just referees just be big enough to to clamp stamp it out. Spot on, gentlemen. That's all we've got time for. We'll have to do it again. It was great to have you both in and yourself as well, Murray. Thanks a million to all of the listeners, all of the forty-two members for your questions. Very sorry if we didn't get around to your question. Just time has caught up on us a little bit here. But uh, there'll be other opportunities, no doubt. Stay well until we chat to you next time. Uh, until then, take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is coming off! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Kicking when the room is spinning and the words aren't sticking.